Shalom, everyone. Uh, bow with me in prayer. Father Yahweh, we thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you for the cooler weather, the gentle rain, Father. We just thank you for the blessings that it brings. We thank you for the fellowship that we have here, a, a place of worship that we can come and gather at and, and worship you, Father. We pray that the service has been a sweet incense so far to you, and I pray that my words be yours and that they resonate with your people. And anything that is mine, anything that is conceited, prideful, or whatever, Father, I pray that you just cause it to fall away. And Father, be with your people all around the world and be with your people who are recovering. And just, we thank you. We praise you and we love you in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. So I have to get the elephant out of the room, out of the way. This is not a message about Aretha Franklin. Just getting it out of the way. It worked for the purposes that I wanted to use it for. And... This is going to be a pretty broad-reaching message because the, the aspect of respect can be, you can apply it to almost anything in your life. If you are committed to your work, you respect the work you do. And if you're committed to your family, you respect your family, you respect your children, they respect you, you respect your wife, your boss. I mean, respect is such a broad thing that it's hard to narrow it down. You could, but I didn't. It's hard to narrow it down. And so I have a few points that I want to make. And uh, I say that, and I've got like 15 pages of notes. But um, when I say the word respect, what do you think of? Do you think of your mom and dad? Do you think of grandpa, grandma, your boss? I know when I think of respect, I always think of my granddad. Because it was pretty, pretty strictly enforced, I'll say that. And uh, if, if the word respect comes to mind when thinking of any of those things, your, your mother, your father, grandparents, your boss, that's right. You should. You should respect those people. Now, put yourself back in your shoes when you were like six, when you were like six or seven years old. And mom and dad tell you not to go to your friend's house to play, but instead clean your room and do some chores. Does that tarnish the image of respect that you had for them? For your parents. I know when I was a kid, I mean, I was prone to being a brat, I'm sure. Mom would tell me, you know, oh, no, you need to do this instead of go play. And, and you know, it was, even if it was temporary, you know, I did what she told me, but it was in my heart as a child, you know, you don't know any better as a child. In your heart, you, there is a lack of, you lose something there, typically. I'm probably the only one in here that suffered from that. But anyway, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is respect has to be tough. Let's say your boss, who you respect, I hope, overlooks you for a promotion that you are clearly qualified for in favor of someone else. Does that affect your respect for that person? Again, respect has to be tough. If you truly respect someone... You have to continue respecting them even if it doesn't benefit or even agree with you. There obviously is a limit to that if somebody's you know, abusing the relationship with you. That's one thing. And the same goes for the elderships and the leaders in the assembly. And, you know, elders are not immune from criticism. And it's not like they can do no wrong. But as a general rule, you know, they're tasked with helping the body grow and helping its members achieve the, uh, the kingdom. That's why they do what they do. 
It's easy to like and respect someone who's always making judgment calls that align with what you want, with your personal preference. I mean, how easy would that be if, to respect somebody if they just did whatever you wanted them to do? It wouldn't really be respect, though. It's much harder to respect someone who might not agree with you and make decisions that you disagree with. Yahshua, you know, our example, who deserves every ounce of respect that we can give him, paints a very easy-to-understand picture concerning... And it's not necessarily just about respect, but I believe that this, from his parable, I believe you can glean that from his parable. Over in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, it's the parable, parable of the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So about nine in the morning, he went out and, others, and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went again. He went out again about noon. About three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around and asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, nobody hired us, they answered. He said to them, go back and also work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, and they each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. But he answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Oops, I have a little bit. Anyway, did those workers who were brought on in the beginning respect the decision that was being made regarding bringing on the workers at the end of the day? I don't think they did. And what did the master tell them? I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? So in our lives, I think you can, you can pretty easily see this, how this would play out in the world today. Imagine, and it happens sometimes, you know, you get somebody who's been at this job for 10, 15, 20 years, and then some newbie flies in, and he's getting paid nearly the exact same as the guy that's been there for 20 years. And they, obviously, obviously that's a problem. But you agreed to work for your wages. And so that respect that's there, the respect that's not there, I should say, is something that we have to be aware of. The kingdom, in this case, is our denarius in this situation. And sometimes those whom Yahweh chooses will make a decision that may seem unfair on the surface, but ultimately we have to believe that they have the best interest of the flock at heart. And I'm talking, of course, about elders and leaders and deacons and, and heads of household and things like that. The kingdom is our denarius. We have all agreed to work for the same reward. And we can't get bent out of shape if somebody comes along 
who just flies in, the newbie flies in and wants the same reward. We're all working for the same thing. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you. Those who must give an account, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, or that would be of no benefit to you. I think there's a lot to unpack in this little verse right here. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy and not a burden. I tell you, <laughs> sometimes it weighs. I'm not, even, I'm not even like a deacon or an elder or anything. I'm just the guy that works here. And I can tell you, it gets burdensome. The anointing of leadership is placed on these men. And they are held accountable for that leadership. This isn't just a ticket to free respect. This is a, there's a double portion of responsibility put on the leaders, the elders, the deacons, etc. First Timothy 5.15 states, Let elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those labor in preaching and teaching. So this is something that's like if somebody has chosen this life, if somebody has chosen to be involved in this way, that's worthy of a double portion of honor and respect. Now this does not mean the leadership has the right to walk all over you or anybody else, but it should give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to doctrine. Now, can there be disagreements? Of course, of course. Can there be discussion about those disagreements? Absolutely. Can things even change based on those disagreements and discussions? Possibly. It's happened before. It can happen. But ultimately, Yahweh has placed the anointing on these men as leaders of the flock. And being a leader of an assembly isn't as simple as getting up here to pray, read, or give a sermon. Those things are, to be honest, the easy part. This is the easiest part of the whole thing, honestly. Praying, reading, giving sermons. I like being up here. This is a joy for me. But beyond that is what's hard. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or overseer, he desireth a good work. A bishop or overseer, a pastor, or whatever you insert, whatever you want to call it there. An overseer must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent or a striker, not greedy for money or filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house. Ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjugation with all gravity. For if a man knoweth not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the assembly of Elohim? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall to the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have good report with him who are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In order to even be qualified for the office of pastor, bishop, overseer, whatever, these men have to be on another level. Now, sadly, this, is, this little chunk of scripture is 
just ignored almost entirely. I know most of the people that I know of personally that are that don't meet these qualifications are leading leading places. They don't meet the qualifications, but yet there they are. The, you have to be on another level is what I'm saying. And sadly, again, many of the leaders, and I would say mainly in like the Hebrew Roots movement, they don't meet these qualifications. Now, this isn't an attack at them. This is not an attack at them. Because I know that you know, sometimes Yahweh uses who he has in a situation. But these overseers, these pastors, these elders, these deacons and things like that, they have to prove themselves says that they have to prove themselves of not, not be violent or strikers. They have to be proven that they are not violent so that they can gently teach those who struggle with violence. They have to be proven that they're not covetous and greedy as to be a good steward with the increase that Yahweh gives to the assembly. And they must prove they will not live a life of excess with Yahweh's increase. They're responsible for the assembly and the assembly's well-being. This is why we see the requirement of, of family order. How are you going to have, how can you sit down with somebody and say, my children, I don't know how to control them. There's an issue here. How can you do those things if you, if they themselves, would you go to somebody whose kids were running around like banshees, screaming their heads off, destroying the place in order to get instruction on how to control your kids? Of course not. You have to, they have to have their house in order, in order to give that advice to people. They have to prove themselves in that respect before they're qualified to take care of the assembly and their families. They cannot be a novice because there will be those who have questions, who are on the fence with truth. And these men are responsible for teaching the word to those people, both members and new people. And their pride can't get in the way of gentle teaching. And that's, this is why not being a novice is so crucial. Because when you're a novice, it's not that you are inherently flawed. It's just that you're on that zeal takes hold. And it, the scripture talks about the seed that lands on the rocky soil. It springs up and it looks great at the very, very beginning. But it doesn't have a firm foundation to grow on. And so you have these people who come into this and they're new and they're on fire. And a lot of times that zeal bleeds over into their judgment. And they may not be as gentle as they should be with somebody who's struggling. They may not be as patient, as meek, as humble as they should be because they're on, they got that fire's burning so brightly. They can't, they can't control it properly. They can't temper that zeal down to where they can maintain a relationship with people who are struggling in something that they may not be familiar with. The warning for this particular thing being a novice, is interesting, I think. Quote, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. These men that are called to the ministry leadership are warned not to be prideful, lest they suffer the same condemnation of the devil. I mean, that's like, yikes. This is an enormous penalty. And they have to take it seriously. So when you have somebody, and I can't remember, it might have been Brother Bannock that called it a cult of personality. Whenever, you know, you've got somebody, it, it's something, you go to, you see a, a, a preacher or a pastor, it doesn't matter what denomination they are. But if it's all about them, that's a problem. 
if it's so-and-so ministry, watch out, in my opinion. If you've got a ministry named after somebody, that's a problem. Because in my opinion, when I look at that, I see that it's about them. It's not about the people. It's not about Yahweh. It's not about Yahshua. It's about that person. And you have to be careful. I'm not making a judgment call on their hearts. I'm just telling you what it says here. And again, they cannot be good people only while they're here either. That's, this is probably the most demanding part of this whole thing is that they have to be essentially on your best behavior all the time. They have to have a solid reputation outside the assembly as well. You can't be a gentle lamb here and a ravening wolf out in the world. You can't do that. You have to be good all the time. And I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that it's something that like nobody can work on, but it is something that's demanded in Scripture. All of this combined with the task, and this is just to qualify. This isn't including everything that they have to do in the job. All this combined with the task of handling woes and grievances in the body as a whole is an immense responsibility. Imagine somebody comes to you with a huge issue, a marital dispute, let's say, something. I mean, it is just nasty. It has boiled over, and it's a huge problem. You have to be able to deal with that and not bring it home. You can't take it with you outside of the assembly because you still got to be on your best behavior. You can't go vent to the guy next door. You got to be able to maintain this chaos. Imagine Moses. He's got all these stiff necked Israelites following him around to the desert. And I mean, it's just Yahweh has got a pillar of fire. For crying out loud, Red Sea's parting, and these people are still moaning and complaining. And he only got 70 elders to help him. But still, it was all on him at one point. They get called in at all hours to counsel, listen, talk, guide, teach, write. The feasts are a vacation for a lot of people, but they're not for people who are in this position. It's, it's not. It's work. And that's a good thing. And that's what they're supposed to be here for. This is what they signed on for when they got here. And anybody who's been here for any length of time through any number of fees could tell you that they don't get a whole lot of downtime. There's not a, fam- there's not a lot of family time if you're a, if you're a, a minister in the, in the assembly during the feast. But again, that's what they're there for. And I think ultimately what I'm trying to say in this is just let them know that you appreciate it. While you're at the campfire roasting hot dogs and eating kosher marshmallows, they're dealing with somebody's marital dispute. They're dealing with a a crisis of faith. They're dealing with an infighting, doctrinal disputes. They're not sitting down and fellowshipping with people. Sometimes they are. But when those things arise, they're the ones that have to deal with it. Just let them know that you appreciate it. It goes a long way. So now, I'm going to move on to dealing with issues, doctrines, etc. So if there's a disagreement in the assembly, we've established that what, what, the, uh, what the elders' roles are, what the deacons' roles are, and those in charge. If there's a disagreement within the assembly in doctrine, that's fine. 
believe it or not. It's not like a death sentence. It's fine. But we have to go to the elders about the disagreement. Why? It's not because we're trying to keep our thumb down on people. It's because that's how Scripture says to do it. In the book of Acts, and I think this is ultimately, I think, in my opinion, this is the best example of this being played out in Scripture. In the book of Acts in chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas getting into a doctrinal dispute with certain men. We don't know who certain men are, but what did they do? Well, you'll see that one party doesn't throw their hands up and walk away. No, in verse 1 and 2, we see the solution they arrived at. Acts 15, verses 1 through 2. And certain men came down from Judea who had taught the brethren and said, Except that you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So here you had brand new people converting into this who were evidently uncircumcised. And certain men came down from Judea teaching that if they, unless they were circumcised, they weren't going to be saved. So what did they do? Did they sit there and argue and bicker and fight and moan and complain? No. They all agreed the best thing they could do is go to Jerusalem and talk to the elders and the apostles. And how many times have we seen this? Not just here, but anywhere. Somebody gets an idea of how things should be done, and rather than go to the elders and work out a solution, they just walk away and head out on their own as if that has ever worked out for the body. And that's the key. This isn't about you. This isn't about your personal belief. This isn't about your doctrine. This is about the strength of the body. Is the ultimate end of your, goal, of your actions going to strengthen or weaken the body? If we refuse to humble ourselves and submit to the authority that Yahweh lays out, we ask for trouble. Iron sharpens iron. And the elders are here for that reason. Just as Paul and Barnabas and the others did, we have to do the same. And here's the thing. Petty grievance. This is a big deal. There was a lot. And what happened? Well, they got together. Each, they probably got together. Each side discussed their point of view and they arrived at a solution that benefited the body and still allowed the truth to go forth being humble is essential to this entire process if i have a disagreement with the leadership about doctrine that's fine but when you go if i go and discuss this with them i have to go into that meeting understanding that i might need to be the one that's corrected If other men were willing to submit, if the other men, we again, we don't know who other men were, but if they were willing to submit to the decision that they disagreed with, so can you, so can I. We have to give the benefit of the doubt to the leadership exactly as they did in Acts 15. These other men, you don't hear about them rabble-rousing and causing a ruckus and, and stirring the pot. As far as we know, the, elder, the uh, elders and the apostles got together, they hashed it out, they made a decision, and that was that. Because even those other men from Judea who were at odds with Paul still respected the elders and the apostles. That doesn't mean that the leadership is not immune to correction. 
But again, if there's an issue to correct, we have to do so in the right way. Humbly, gently. If a wolf gets into the sheep pen, the answer is not to throw a stick of dynamite. Get rid of the wolf. You have to remove the wolf without harming the sheep. You have to, like a surgeon's scalpel, you have to be very precise. You have to do, eliminate as much splash damage as you can. A lot of times, what we, and this is the human condition. I've been one of those people before I get upset. And my, my attitude is I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. I'll just get, just, that's it, I'm done. Throw my hands up, walk away. But that's not right. And I've been that person before. There's a correct way to handle things. And often what we see is someone gets offended. They lay out a study. Or they study out a different conclusion to a doctrine than that of the eldership. And rather than just go through the steps that we talked about, they get angry. Dive deeper into their pet doctrine. Refuse to even talk with the elders. And the next thing you know, dissension and discord is being sown. Gossip, factions are being made. I'm on this person's side. I agree with this person. And the body is divided against itself. This is absolutely the opposite of how it should be done. Before you know it, the leadership, who is still out of the loop, is being chastised over decisions that have been made outside of their purview. Because people get upset and they jump the chain of command and they just take it into their own hands. Vigilante justice, so to speak. And I understand disagreements are going to pop up. That's the nature of this walk. But if it's a doctrinal disagreement, we just have to reinforce the chain of command that we see in Scripture. Like if a brother or a sister offends you, you go to them directly. Go to them first. If you have a disagreement with doctrine, go to the elders first. If you're approached about a disagreement with doctrine, it should be, let's say, I say, hey, what do you think about this new doctrine? The, the, the first thing you should say is, have you talked to the elders about that? Have you ran this through the, fil- the, the chain of command? They know more about this than I do. Talk to them about it. It shouldn't be these backroom discussions. And again, I don't want this to come across like, you know, only say what we say is, is right. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a proper way to go about these things. The anointing that is, that is given to these people, to these men, is there for a reason. And I'm not standing up here to tell you not to study on your own, not to think for yourself. I am telling you that if you're going to, if you're going to bring something up that affects the body, have the respect to go to those who are accountable for that body. If you find yourself coming across a doctrine that you think is valid, that's great. We're all searching for that truth. However, we have to remember that Yahweh doesn't always send out a guiding spirit. Sometimes he sends out a spirit to test your faith. Over in 1 John, I think 1 John gets overlooked a lot, by the way. He has a lot to say that is relevant and pertinent to our walk. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from Elohim. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you shall know the spirit of Elohim. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua has come in the flesh is of Elohim. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from Elohim. Another one. That's your, that's your New Testament portion. Now let's go fly back into the Old Testament. First Kings 
chapter 22, verses 21 through 23. And I think this is the big one. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will persuade, persuade him. And Yahweh said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And Yahweh said, you shall persuade him and, and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these of the prophets of yours, and Yahweh has declared disaster against you. Now, I know this is a, this is a specific case that we're talking about, but it proves that it's possible. This is something we have to be aware of. And I know you have all heard this a million times. Somebody on your one hand says, Yahweh showed me this. He said, this way is right. And then the guy on this side says, Yahweh showed me this, and this way is right. And they're opposed to each other. If these ways are opposite of each other, they can't both be true, but they're both telling you that Yahweh told them this is the way it should be. In fact, both of them may be false. That's the hard part. And so I think what Scripture says to prove all things, I think that means even if you hear an audible voice from heaven saying, this is the way, prove it. Prove it by the Scripture. Because every time you hear it, just because you get an inkling, just because your conscience is tugging on you, doesn't mean that it's Yahweh. We have to prove all these things. All things means all things, no matter where you think it comes from. And that is something that the leadership is here to help with. That's what the elders, the deacons, that's what they're for. You hear this, prove it. You think you understand something, that's great. That's great, but there are, there are people that have been anointed by Yahweh to be here for this purpose, to sharpen your sword. That's why they're here. Over in Isaiah, I don't think I have a, I don't think I have a slide for this. I do. How about that? Isaiah 30, verses 9 through 10, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of Yahweh, which is to say the seers, say, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets prophesy not unto us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. So here you have seers, you have prophets. You know, these are things that we often link to truth. But you can see a rebellious and lying children asking, asking these prophets. They're not even like looking for a prophet that will tell them what they want to hear. They're asking these prophets, to just, hey, just tell us something good. You know, I've had a bad week. Tell me something great's going to happen to me. You know, I understand the draw of new Giant air quotes, quotes on this, by the way. New understanding. But we have to realize something crucial. It is possible for us to discover the full truth of a matter. It is possible. Something like, let's, just, let's just go down to the very foundation of most things. The Sabbath. We know when it is. We know the rules. And we can prove it. Things that are that sure don't come along very often. And yet, there are a million people out there debating on it. It's amazing. The, 
the new Sabbath, and I've heard, and this is just an example. This isn't something that's like pertinent that's happened here recently, but this is just an example. I hear a lot of people commenting online, a new Sabbath truth has been revealed. And the same thing could be said for clean and unclean foods. We know what clean and unclean foods are. No amount of study, no amount of revelation is ever going to prove a pig is clean. It's not going to happen. We know that truth. It is 100% established. The temptation of new things, new teaching, new understanding is strong. And there are many gray areas in Scripture about various topics and popping up. It's never about a gray area. It's always about something that's like well-established. The Sabbath, the name, clean foods, something like that. It's always, and I think that's by design. I think that's the enemy trying to uproot the foundation. And I bring all this up because the body is supposed to help ward off these things. The heads of the body are the elders. And so if there is an attack on the foundation of our faith, they're there to defend it. That's why they have been anointed to that position. We have to be able to teach truth. And that will never happen if we're constantly bombarded with new truth. Sometimes we have to admit that maybe this part's figured out and it's okay to defend it. A lot of times we're so scared to defend our faith because we don't want to offend somebody. It's possible. If you do it right, if you defend your faith and if you defend your beliefs and you do it right, there is a right way to do it, by the way. You won't offend somebody. And if they do get offended and you still do it the right way, that's on them, not you. Over in 2 Timothy now, we did 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of Elohim, having a form of righteousness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For these are the sort who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. You know, and I think that this is something that's, that's pretty prevalent. And, it's, and I, think, I feel like it's pretty commonplace. Generally, when somebody like this shows up, it's, it's a lot of times you'll notice it's... And it's not families. Generally, families are pretty strong like this. But it's usually single women that get sucked into this nonsense. We've seen it many times. But that doesn't mean men are immune. They ha- it happens to them, too. They get pulled into it. But, the, but generally speaking, it is... Vulnerable women that are the target of these type of people. We have to have a solid foundation for our truth, and we have to have the basics down pat before we even attempt to adopt a new doctrine. Imagine if somebody walked in who is as this verse describes. And notice, everything mentioned here is the opposite of what is required of an overseer or a pastor. You can't be greedy. You can't be violent. You can't. You, 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 it, but all of these things is what these people are, and yet they're coming in and they're teaching. 
And they're always learning. Oh, I got something new to tell you. I got something new. Imagine if somebody that is, as it says here, walked in and said, hey, I have a new revelation to share. Or imagine they say, hey, have you heard of the lunar Sabbath? Imagine like that happening. I mean, it's easy to sit here and be like, oh, that never happened. But it happens all the time. Maybe not like directly in person, but people come in to the body and they've got these ideas. And a lot of times they meet all of these prerequisites that scripture lays out. Do you listen to them? Scripture makes it very clear that these people who chase after they're always learning while ignoring the weightier matters of the law, so to speak, are to be avoided. These type of people prey on the unstudied and those with itching ears, just like the ones in Isaiah said, hey, teach us something smooth, something easy. Tell us something neat. I just want to know something neat. And I was one with those itching ears. I'm not going to sit up here and make it sound like I was like not into any of this stuff. I was definitely one of those people for years. I got into all kinds of different stuff, looking into things. Oh, this is a fun, this is a fun thing. I got hooked on the book of Enoch. I did. I got hooked on it. Book of Jasher, all kinds of crazy stuff happening in there. I got into everything you could think of, and I loved looking into these things. Why? Because it was something new. What if there was something in here that somebody had overlooked, and it's like, oh, man. The temptation in there to find something new, rather than just, we know what the truth is, and rather than just go with it, I was diving into this. So while I'm spending dozens of hours diving into the pages of these books for forgotten or forbidden truth, I couldn't tell you what the truth of the first resurrection was. I had no idea. I thought 144,000 was all that was going to make it in the first resurrection. That is not how it's going to play out. But that's what I thought. Why? Because rather than study what was important, I was concerned with other things. I couldn't tell you why the Sabbath was so important. I couldn't tell you why it was crucial to fellowship with like-minded believers. I couldn't tell you why the feasts were important or prophetic. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what a beep meant. I thought a beep was something a baby wore when they ate. I couldn't tell you what Yeshua's name meant. Yet there I was, scouring these pages for truth. Because it was exciting. Because it was new. And I wanted so badly for these things, these awesome things that I was reading to be true. We had angels warring in heaven. They were rebelling. They were chained up in darkness and watchers and pillars of ice. I mean, it was like a Hollywood movie playing out. It was incredible. And so, of course, as a young man, I was just like, let's do it. This this is great. But these things were distractions. Shiny distractions, sure, but distractions nevertheless. And what I didn't do, guess what I didn't do about any of these things? I didn't, go to the, I didn't go to the elders. I didn't ask them about any of it. I didn't ask them about the things I was reading. I didn't ask them about the things that I didn't understand. I was wrapped up in my own mind. We have to establish what the foundation is. It took me years to figure it out. Now I'm st- I still have questions. We all do. Questions that we want answers to. But our delight has to be in Yahweh's instruction. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners 
or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction, and he meditates, it, he meditates on it day and night. And we need to rely on those people who do this. Who have that anointing of leadership. Even if we do not agree on every single detail. If you think you're onto something, that's great. But don't be bent out of shape when the elders don't get together and say, Hey, you know what? Let's just let's change everything. They're not going to drop and do a 180. Why? Because that's not how you do it. Even if you agree with the doctrine. Even if you find it to be true. You need time, study, prayer, fasting, and testing before it's applied. I had somebody call a while back and say, you know, this message about comets and Sior, oh, it's got me concerned. I said, why? He said, I feel like you guys are losing ground on this. It's not, it doesn't seem important. And I told him, I was like, that's the, that's the most important message we've had out of this assembly in a long time. And let me tell you why. Because it, we did it the right way. We had the heads, we had the, the learned men get together and study and prove it and submit it to the elders. And then it was changed. That's how you do it. I had a woman call and said, you need to call everybody who has ever bought a Bible from you and tell them you repent because there is something in there that is wrong. And I said, okay, well, what is it? And she had it. I'm not, not going to get into it. It was a doozy. But I'm not going to get into it. But her opinion was that because she was told of this revelation that we need to call all these people personally, one-on-one, and apologize to them. And I asked her to lay out her doctrine for me, and she did. And I said, I can take this, and if you, want to, if you send me everything you've got in writing so we can prove it, I was like, I'll sit down and I'll look at it. And I never heard anything back. She wanted a result over the phone. She wanted it now. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. These things don't change overnight. And as we read before, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, they went through the proper channels. This was technically a new doctrine that the Gentile, with the Gentiles that they were establishing. They went to the elders and the apostles and they presented their argument. We don't know how long deliberations took, but we know that they met, they discussed the matter together, and they didn't fight amongst themselves, and they didn't gossip about the opposing side. The opposing side didn't storm off in a rage. Well, at least it's not recorded if they did. And a solution was reached. It was a civil, humble, gentle procedure. But what about personal grievances? What if a brother in the faith has wronged you? What do you do? Well, Messiah laid it out extremely clearly and perfectly in Matthew 18. If somebody does something bad to you, just go read Matthew 18. It's perfect. I promise you it applies. It doesn't matter what they've done. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, I could stop there, and I know that there's already going to be a lot of problems because... As people, we make everything about us. This is, we don't make it about the body of Messiah. Here's the thing. If somebody offends you, you need to react to it as though they're attacking. The body is offended. Everything we do needs to be to strengthen the body. And if that means going to your brother alone, privately, go to your brother. And if he listens and he says, 
I had no idea I offended you, or I'm sorry, I was angry and I attacked you, and you fix it, praise Yahweh. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen to even the assembly, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. You know, we read about the 99, you know, oh, we got to leave the 99 to grab the one. Yes, you do. But if the one refuses to come back, you don't keep going. You go to them once, twice, three times, and maybe Yahweh will bring them back. But ultimately, we're going to have squats and squabbles. It's going to happen. It's gonna have, we're going to have spats. We're going to have little, little outbreaks. But we do not have to let Satan have a foothold in those things. If I do something to offend you, anybody, please come tell me so I can make it right. If you do something to offend me, I'll be sure to sit down with you so, I can, so we can make it right. If it happens again and again, as long as a heart is right, forgiveness must be given again and again. Matthew 18, again, in uh, in verses 21 through 22. Then came Peter to him and said, Master, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Yahshua saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy-seven times. Seventy times seven. There's, There's something here. And I think that, you know, if somebody comes to you and slaps you in the face, says, sorry, and then slaps you in the face again, they're not, there's a problem. They're not interested in actual forgiveness. But if somebody is struggling, if somebody has an issue they're trying to deal with, and they're falling short because their flesh is weak, even Yahshua said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If there's somebody who is struggling, and they fall short, we help them up. And if they're still, if they're trying, you can't put a limit on that, on that type of forgiveness. You can't put a limit on it. And it, it hinges on a humble spirit. That's what everything hinges on. A desire to treat your brother as greater than yourself. This is so important that Yahshua gives three opportunities for the offending party to see reason and make amends. If we're going to spend eternity with each other, let's fix our problems now. We can't let some petty squabble keep... Could you imagine? I want you to think about anybody that has, that has offended you. Think about it for a second. They have, and, then you just, and it just burns you when you think about it. Now I want you to think about it. If they had an opportunity for salvation, would you be willing to take it from them? Would you be willing to say, he's not getting in or she's not getting in? We as believers are responsible for our own salvation. But that does not mean we get to isolate ourselves from the body if something comes up we disagree with or if someone offends you. It is possible for someone who disagrees with the doctrine of this, the ministry in general to go along with the ruling of the elders. If you have a different understanding of something, that's fine. But it's also fine to submit to the authority of those who have been put in charge to guide the assembly. It has to happen. 
Because if you spend your walk focusing on finding that perfect assembly, that assembly where no one offends anyone and everyone is perfect and you agree with everything, and if you have a decision that you disagree with, they change it on the spot. If you look for that assembly, you'll never find it. You will wander alone in this world forever. We all want the perfect assembly. And when you were new to this faith, what did you look for? What did you want out of an assembly? Did you even know what an assembly was? When you first attended, whether YRM or anywhere else, I mean, this, we're, just one of, we're just one spot, you know? What did you think? When you first kept the feast somewhere, what was your first thought? Often, the first thought is, this place is perfect. This place is perfect. This is, this is it. This is, this is the best. And then what happens? A few years later, shiny polish wears off. And you come to the sometimes brutal realization that it is not, in fact, perfect. People have ugly scars, tendencies, and that new car smell wears off quick. So what then? What do you do when you realize that this assembly that you thought was perfect is just made up of people that are like us? Ugh, they struggle with stuff. They're not perfect. They fall short. Ugh. What do you do? Do you burn the bridge down? Do you say, hey, this place, nope, I was wrong about this place. What do you do? You work. You engage yourself. And this was proven in Scripture. When the Apostle Paul wrote his epistles to the assemblies, what do we find? We find groups of people who are struggling. These are people that are doing things that are compared to, you know, we people have their grievances, but compared to some of the people Paul was dealing with, this is a cakewalk. We find Paul working his tail off for the remainder of his life from the time he was converted on the road to Damascus till the, to the day he died, he was working with these assemblies. Paul's letters show us how to encourage one another. And this is kind of what I was talking about. You know, it's one thing to respect. It's, it's good to respect the elders. It's good to respect the deacons, the heads of household. That respect is good. But there also needs to be an understanding on how to respect your brother and your sister, the new person. The person struggling, the person who's riddled with addiction, the person who's riddled, you know, different things. Paul gives us some examples. Tell them that you thank Yahweh for them and their fellowship in the Messiah. Identify some traits that give evidence of Yahweh working in their lives. Share a biblical truth or promise that speaks to their present situation. And show how they contribute to the overall health and growth of the assembly. I think a lot of people leave. They're bent out of shape because maybe a misunderstanding. Maybe they didn't feel appreciated. Paul always gives encouragement. But that's not to say he doesn't criticize and teach ways for these assemblies to grow and fix their problems. Because they obviously had issues that needed to be worked out. The assembly in Galatia, for example, were trying to, they're shaking off their old ways and they were backsliding into a, quote, different good news than what was preached by the Messiah. And Paul doesn't waste any time in chastising and warning these people. Over in Galatians 1, and I am, I don't have that much longer. That's okay. Over in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. And, I, and I, like, I like how frank Paul is in, in these, because it says, like, 
I feel like writing a letter to somebody, you still have a little, you got the distance between you, you know? I wonder if he would have spoken this way to them face to face. I don't know. I am astonished. <laughs> this is the first line. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Messiah and are turning to a different good news, which is really no good news at all. Evidently, some, are people are, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Messiah. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under Elohim's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a good news other than what you accepted, let him be under Elohim's curse. That's, that's pretty damning. But what he doesn't do this is what he said. We, it's all there written for you to see. What didn't he do? He didn't write them off as a lost cause and go his separate way. He worked with them. He encouraged them. He, he built them up. He criticized them. He pointed out the giant flaw that they were experiencing and gave them advice on how to fix it. Paul warns about, these, about trying to please men and trying to, trying to please Yahweh. He doesn't tear down. He builds up with constructive criticism. And that's how we have to be. If we see something wrong or unscriptural, we need to bring it to the attention of the leaders and do our best to assist and to be a servant of Messiah, doing everything in love. What we shouldn't do, and this is typically the typical response, is abandon the flock because of personal grievances. And I understand that there are times when we can get on each other's nerves. But I also think Yahweh knew what he was doing when he made long-suffering one of the fruits of the Spirit. And I believe there is a time for leaving the flock. If all options are exhausted, or if there's a blatant disregard for Scripture, Messiah, or Yahweh. But a lot of times it's just the person just has to look at somebody funny. Or if the assembly isn't functioning at 100% efficiency in all things, I don't believe that's really a cause for leaving. It's a cause for engagement. I had somebody... They left. They're no longer with the assembly. And they were complaining that the assembly doesn't do enough to help, to do, do things. And my response was, okay, so do them. You're a part of this assembly. Go do it. If, you, if, if you're not happy with the way the assembly is functioning, then do the thing that you're upset about. It's, it's not complicated. And, you know, these things, they feed into one another. If you start to do a good thing, other people will join you. It's taking that first step. It's a little uncomfortable. And praise Yahweh. You know what? I, I will say, he was right. The assembly wasn't doing enough. I'm not going to sit here and say he was wrong. He was right. But guess what? There have been improvements. There have been things that have been going on to improve that situation. And yes, we lost that. That person is no longer with the assembly. But guess what? The body's stronger for it. The body's stronger for those criticisms. We have to continue to build each other up in faith and love because when the time comes and that is fast approaching, we're going to need all the support we can get. Petty grievances between one another when we're worried about persecution, honestly, those little things are going to be pretty trivial. Don't let them make a festering wedge between you and your brother or you and your sister now. 
You might have an issue with so-and-so, and they may have an issue with you, but it is your responsibility to repair that situation and move on from that situation and live a righteous life in harmony with the body. The end game is the kingdom. It is my goal to spend eternity with as many of you as I possibly can. That includes everyone here, everyone online, and anybody that will see you in the future. We are a body of believers, a beloved body of believers. We are to be there for one another, help each other and fight for one another and correct one another. We do these things under the headship of the elders, Yahweh's anointed. We can't, this isn't a free-for-all. This isn't the Wild West. Yahweh is not the Elohim of confusion. He has a very regimented, he says, I don't want your days of worship. I want my days of worship. I don't want your Sabbath. I want my Sabbath. Why would this be any different? He has an established way he wants things done. Sometimes that brotherly love is a, that I'm talking about, sometimes it's a little bit harsh, a little stern. Sometimes it's kind of like a slap in the face. Sometimes it's a warm embrace after a wrong has been righted. And maybe you've been in that situation where somebody has wronged you, and it was years. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know I've experienced this. I had something happen to me that was absolutely horrible. And the person who did it, know what they, they knew what they did. And it was 10 years, maybe 10 years down the road. I saw him, and he, he asked me for my forgiveness. And, you know, time has a good way of letting that fire die down. And I forgave him. And it's a good feeling when that's resolved. When there's a resolution to a matter, it's a good thing. Over in John 13, and I promise I'm wrapping this up. Over in John 13, I told you there was a lot to say. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. As the Messiah loved his disciples, we are to love one another. And sometimes that love comes in the form of a rebuke. But it's a rebuke to correction, not a rebuke to cut down. We don't rebuke somebody because we don't like them. We rebuke somebody because they're doing something wrong. And in the case of those in the body, you do it because you want them to return to come back to Yahweh. Over in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, from that time, Yahshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine seeing that. (laughs) Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Master, this shall not happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of Elohim, but the things of men. And this is proven again when they finally came to take him away. What did they do? They chopped off the ear of the guy that came and took him. And Yeshua was like, oh, these guys healed his ear, fixed it. (laughs) These things had to happen. But after all, Messiah told Peter, get me behind me, Satan. But Yeshua never told this to Peter because he hated Peter. Nor did he desire for Peter to just go away. But it was a stern correction that needed to be given to course correct. Imagine, I mean, Yeshua knew what had to happen. So he couldn't let Peter's overzealousness, remember the overzealousness from earlier, stand in the way of this critical event. So it might seem harsh, but if, imagine if Peter had tried to stop Yahshua. 
What would he have done? I imagine it would have been a whole lot worse than a verbal rebuke. Sometimes Yahweh needs our eagerness to take a backseat to patience and let Yahweh's plan unfold. If you've ever had children help you with chores, sometimes the harder they try, the harder the task gets. <laughs> you know, hey, come help, come help me with this. And then it takes twice as long because they're fumbling around trying to figure this out. You appreciate the thought, but sometimes it's easier if they simply behave and sit still while the work is being done. Sometimes, it's, and to Peter's credit, he didn't, he didn't seem to take it personally. He didn't storm out and leave. He respected the master and knew that he would only say such a thing. If, if it was coming from the Messiah, he knew that it was for his good and for the good of his kingdom. That doesn't mean he always got along with everything. I mean, we have several examples of this, but I won't get into that. Peter was simply overzealous when he spoke out of turn. I mean, imagine if Yahshua was here and he says, hey, I got to go die. There would be a line of people trying to stop him from leaving. I mean, I would. I'd be the same. I'd be right there with, with Peter. I probably would have got rebuked too. Sometimes when we make it about us, personally, rather than a correction that blesses the body. And we know Messiah did not rebuke Peter to hurt him. Similarly, if a brother or sister comes to you and corrects you, for your first reaction can't be to, everyone here is too valuable to let some petty grievance fracture the body. And when we're baptized into the body of Messiah, we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Division, discord, backbiting, it doesn't bear good fruit. And if we simply follow the chain of command and the procedure laid out in Scripture, we can not only have peace, not only have shalom, but also love and understanding of Yahweh's word. And this is how we help further the kingdom together. So let's fight for one another. Let's correct one another. Let's truly fix the issues that linger among the body. And let's do all these things in love and gentleness. Just as Paul did, said and did, let's submit to the authority of the elders. They are charged with leading the flock. And if they get it wrong, they will be held responsible. We have to use all the tools that Yahweh has given us to make this work. We can't skip steps and expect things to work out. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. But ultimately, like I said, think about somebody you have a grievance with, somebody that has wronged you. And there was a kingdom. The door to the kingdom was right there. And they were standing there with you, and you got to decide whether or not they went in or out. The kingdom is worth it. The brother you have a problem with, the sister you have a problem with, they're worth it. I pray that the disagreements and the disputes don't stand in the way of forgiveness and of understanding. And let's fight to not let Satan have a foothold in this body. May Yahweh bless you.